Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. Today, I'm joined by two guests to wrap up the campaign for this weekend's Victorian state election. My first guest is Andrea Carson. Andrea is a professor of political communication at La Trobe University. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Ben. Great to be here. My second guest is Stuart Jackson. Stuart is a senior lecturer in government at the University of Sydney. Hello, Stuart. Hi, Ben. Hi, Andrea. Great to be here. Victoria's state election will be held this Saturday, 26 November, but over 800,000 voters have already cast their ballot with record high rates of early voting so far. We haven't had that many polls, but what we do have suggests that Labor is on track for a comfortable victory. Andrea, have you seen anything in the last few weeks that would change that preconception? I think you're right. The polls are suggesting that it will be a comfortable Labor victory, but there's some other indicators we can look at, and that is how much um, money is being spent on Facebook, uh, what the media campaign has been like, and also just some of the comments on the ground. Um, in terms of the ad spend, Labor is well and truly outspending the Liberals on Facebook. Uh, we're seeing some of the teal candidates that are doing quite a big ad spend in their particular electorates. But the media campaign, the free um, media, rather than um, the messages that are paid for, that's been pretty vitriolic with the Herald Sun running some pretty damning headlines over the course of the last few weeks. And as always, it's a question of um, how much influence mainstream media has. If we look at the federal election, uh, it also was a fairly vitriolic campaign on the front pages and yet Labor still got across the line. So I think if we look at all those different indicators, um, it's still Labor's most probable election victory. Well, I've long thought that the Labor Party is in the box seat. Um, Exactly which seats they will hold is where I think the question comes in. Um, the story this morning about the Richmond candidate uh, having some issues about her heritage um, being raised um, may place a little bit of a, you know, perhaps a, a, an off-colour uh, element to the last week. You know, is it one of those Tuesday surprises? Um, perhaps I still think that Dan Andrews has an election to lose as opposed to Matthew Guy, Lobster Guy, you know, for one to win. Um, that's that to me is the reality of the situation. The paths to victory should be they're getting closer. Labor's only real problem is if the Greens do do well. Uh, some of the polls are pointing them to doing particularly well. If that happens, then they may have to negotiate for some of the inner urban seats. But at the end of the day, I still think that it's Labor's to lose. And one of the stories that um, I don't think we've talked about on the podcast is the Liberals decided to preference the Greens ahead of Labor in the inner city, which they haven't done since the 2010 federal election. Oh, they did it in the last Queensland state election. But in Victoria, they haven't done it since the 2010 federal election. Um, and I think probably that locks in Pran uh, and puts the Greens in a pretty good position to win uh, Richmond and maybe even Northcote. Like it, I think probably Labor's still on track to win a majority without those seats, but um, there's, there's that growing crossbench that means you need to win the Labor Labor coalition contest by a bigger margin to win a majority. I think that's right. Uh, I would, even without the latest scandal coming for the ALP, Richmond, or I should say controversy, um, the Richmond candidate, I would think Richmond is probably likely to go to the Greens this time round. Greens, of course, have three lower house seats uh, and they look fairly on track to be expanding that to five or six. But I defer to Stuart, who knows the Greens better than I do. Well, they always have a capacity to implode at the last minute. 
uh, and they will of course be looking to the uh, the upper house which has some uh, I mean, we can rant on about the upper house as long as we like because it's just such a mess and now we have the issue of angry victorians saying we want to see red mist um which is uh, quite astounding um, to hear. And then all the backtracking from uh, Dr. Cummings saying, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that. You have the upper house liberal um, who's from the, the far right, won't sit in the party room. Um, you know, both sides have got their, their scandals and problems coming up, you know, whether it be one form of corruption or another. Um, both are, in fact, tainted. Um, I haven't, unfortunately, been following the teals, and I'm going to be quite interested to see what sort of traction they actually have away from the federal arena, um, whether that, that uh, uh, translates into seats. Um, yeah, that's, that's going to be the interesting thing. Also, any contests that may arise between Greens and teals, because Greens will run in every seat, but will it actually arise that, well, that they're competing against each other? And how well or badly does that actually play out? There's a group of candidates. I mean, teal has become kind of a meaningless term almost. Um, I'm not sure there's the same kind of organised multi-seat push, but there is a bunch of seats, particularly in the inner southeast. But then there's also people in rural seats. There's a lot of talk about Benambra, um, which overlaps with the federal seat of Indi. Some of these teals are quite conservative, like the thing as well is like I think what we've seen so far in federal politics is the the teal independents who were elected in Melbourne are, um, have shown themselves to be maybe a little bit more progressive on traditional left right issues than those elected in Sydney or Perth, but um some of those indies who are running in some of those seats are like a lot closer to the Liberal Party than um some of the teals have seen before. You know it is a little bit more like a split in the Liberal Party, whereas a lot of the other teals that ran, they kind of positioned themselves as not Labor, but they weren't necessarily that conservative. They they could have been quite progressive, um, and I don't really know how that will flow in an election where the political context is quite different. But there's a lot of them running. They're well funded. Um, I think there's a lot of people on the ground who got used to helping out with their local independent and liked the feel of it, and so are doing it again. And that happens even if political environment has changed and even if the funding situation is different you know you still have those volunteers who are kind of jazzed up after a successful federal election so that will be um that'll be one to watch the other thing to keep in mind is that the teals are running in marginal seats caulfield hawthorne q and mornington uh two of those seats are held by libs and the other two by alp so uh we might see if they're all successful, then that's two seats taken off each of the major parties. Uh, two of the candidates that are running have poured a fair bit of money into their advertising, but we also need to keep in mind that um, the advertising rules, and I'm sure you've spoken about this, Ben, um, fundraising rules have changed in Victoria, which has disrupted the capacity to raise money compared to, say, at the federal level, where the Teals really benefited from the public donations that were flowing in. Now they're unable to raise more than just over $4,000 from an individual or um, company or organised donor over the whole course of the four years of the electoral term. So that makes it quite difficult. It means they can't take lump sums from Climate 200, which is sponsoring um, the candidates. Uh, they can't take more than over 4000 just over $4,000 from 
that organisation. Let's touch briefly on the upper house. We're not going to talk about that as much as we did last week, but last week when I recorded, the story had just started to break about voting tickets coming out and animal justice breaking away from the Drury Alliance. But since then, we've had back and forth all week. Um, Animal justice has kind of come out and said, there's a lot more of the minor parties saying we're not happy with group voting tickets. I mean, One Nation has said that they're not happy with it. Uh, the Liberal Party has come out and said they want to abolish group voting tickets. And then we've had this story now with Catherine Cummings saying these things. And then there was a bit of a thing. I got tagged in a tweet by the Victorian socialists who were criticising Reason, who had been criticising the Liberals for preferencing Cumming, and they then pointed out that Reason was also giving quite favourable preferences to Catherine Cumming in exchange for her own preferences. So um, those were interesting because those are all examples of people who are not working with Glenn Drury, who are also involved in various deals that other people like that other people might think are not in line with their principles and at the very least can't change them. You know, even if they wanted to change those preferences, they're all locked in now. Um, so it has been interesting to see the story's been growing. Both of the uh, main Melbourne newspapers both called on people to vote below the line, which was interesting. Um, so it has, I feel like it has become more of an issue, this election, and sort of become one of the stories. I think it will add an element of disruption. Um, that's what it will do. The voting below the line will slow down the, the process for counting um, people's preferences or you know their numbering, whether it's one to five or onwards. Um, can go all over the place at that point. Um, I think there's going to be a fair bit of focus then placed onto um, how to vote cards. Um, not just, uh, if it would have been earlier, you would have seen it, you know, this week maybe um, how to vote cards that have got more than one or five, you know, the big focus on it in the how to vote cards in the pre-polls. So actually making sure that voters are hearing, you need to do more about this is how you vote for the upper house. Uh, I do think that means it'll be quite a while before we actually get to, you know, who's going to win the last seat. Although perhaps not as long as, you know, when you're going down to counting the the transport matters person or whatever at the very nth degree. Um, But it will be something like that simply because you've got a lot of votes to count or to input um, that aren't just, you know, one here, one here, one here. You've got to go one, two, three, four, five. And it takes time, even with an automatic reader. It takes time to do uh so i do think it'll be a little disruptive i think it might throw up some interesting outcomes in the upper house perhaps less of the the people getting up on 0.1 percent um but it means that it's more of a lottery now for the upper house um that sounds terrible after you know the last election but it's it's not necessarily going to be you know you can track on day one where all the votes are going and who's likely to win I think it's going to be on day one you get over the first preferences and it's like well how many people are below the line you know what have they actually done with their below the line vote we don't know we'll just have to wait and see um, so apart from those who get quota it'll be a case a question of a long wait we need to keep in mind that of the 40 upper house seats 14 are already held by the crossbench and i was talking to some alp insiders on the weekend who described the upper house as a zoo which I thought was a fairly apt description. I can't see how that's going to change too much. Uh, even if there are more people voting below the line, they're probably going to be the more politically engaged that are doing that. Uh, the group voting, uh, the tickets that the parties put up um, uh, is you've got your jury in there that's doing his preference whispering. There might be some backlash to that, but there'll also be a backlash against um 
the ALP which might play out, I think, in the upper house rather than the lower house. So I think we'll still see after the 26th, um, and I agree with Stuart, it'll take a little while to count the votes, but once that comes through, I think we'll still see a, a large crossbench with no majority for either of the parties. What issues have we seen dominating the campaign apart from upper house reform over the last couple of weeks, Andrea? Much of the um, advertising and the messaging has been around health and transport infrastructure type projects. A lot of money has been promised to be spent, a lot more by the uh, Liberals, Thirty uh, about $34 billion of extra spending according to the budgetary office of uh, their promises that have been costed. That compares to about $12 billion from Labor. Uh, which is kind of, well, it's interesting because um, the deficit for Labor or for the government's very high at the moment. It's running up around 20%, I think. Um, it, but Victoria still has a AAA rating. And yet it's the Liberals that are promising to do much more spending than Labor. It also runs against one of the advertising campaigns by the Labor Party coming out that. Um, Matthew Guy is the cuts man. Well, if we look at how much they're promising to spend, they're going to, he's really the spend man. Um, but of course, that campaign is going on his past performance uh, in senior roles when Libs were last in government. Uh, but a lot of it has really focused on that health element, both sides promising to build or to, um, to upgrade hospitals. And then that transport piece, um, which I guess that's where the cuts do come from, with Matthew Guy um, threatening or saying that they will um, not go ahead with the outer rail project that has been planned and has begun by the ALP and instead put that money into health. I mean, I find it quite interesting that we have, you know, the Liberal Party saying we're going to spend lots of money. But at the same time, we have to remember the last federal election, you had a Labor Party saying, we're going to spend lots of money until they got into office and then were able to go, oh, look, the cupboard is bare. We cannot possibly spend all this money and immediately roll back those promises and then actually make a few cuts along the way. So, you know, I, I often think of these promises um, uh, as, well, certainly the dollar amounts as being fleeting thoughts uh, at the beginning of the campaign and certainly by week one in government, you know, they disappeared. But the focus is what's really important because that's what's focusing people's minds about what are the issues. Unfortunately, the, from Sydney, what you tend to get is um, a very different viewpoint. It tends to be what scandals make it to the ABC or the, the Sydney Morning Herald or the Telegraph. So, you know, apart from, you know, various candidates coming under corruption inquiries, it's always about corruption, um, or, you know, identity crisis or, um, uh, you know, violence, it has to be something spectacular and scandalous. So we haven't actually in Sydney seen very much at all on, you know, what is who is wanting to spend what on you know, and where. Um, it's just been all the, the fun and games of the, of the, the campaign, um, which is, I do wish it would be a little different, but maybe that's just the nature of, of the media. Even when you have such you know, heavy cross-media ownership, yes, they all tend to focus on their area. I do think that it's become uh, something of a Liberal Party um, tenant more recently to focus on big budget infrastructure. 
Um, so whether it be airports, whether it be train lines, there's been a tendency to want to say, well, we, we too can build big. We'll become suddenly Menziite and want to do some nation building. Um, even when the, they, they know the cupboard is actually bare, so that you're seeing in New South Wales a wind back on some of the infrastructure projects, you know, putting it off for an extra five years or whatever to slow that spend over time so they can actually start, you know, paying back the, the billions that they had to expend during COVID or the peak of COVID. Uh, so now we have a situation where we're moving, moving into something of a post-COVID world. It's really a COVID world, but it's just post the peaks. Uh, governments are scrambling to try and refocus and to work out where they can raise money, where they can spend it. State governments have got the same old problem they've always had, is that they don't have the, the rivers of revenue unless the prices of housing is going up. And then they have to think, oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to raise the money? Maybe we actually going to talk about spending big, but actually refocus um, a lot of the expenditure. I think it's certainly true, Stuart. You may feel that you're only getting the scandal and the controversy, but it feels like that being in Melbourne as well. Uh, a lot of the headlines have been very much around the personality contest between Matthew Guy and Daniel Andrews, um, both of them being polarising people in their own way. And that obscures the fact that you've had um, 277 costed commitments from the ALP and uh, 409 from the Liberal Party. So there has been lots of policy areas that have been explored. One of the big ones has been very early on in the campaign, um, the Labor Party saying that it's going to put the um, energy companies back into public ownership, a return to the old SEC days of the State Electricity Commission, uh, which was a, a big um, statement when it came out, but it seems to have been forgotten as the campaigns rolled on. And uh, the Herald Sun in particular has been focused on the steps of the beach house that um, caused the alleged injury to Daniel Andrews, uh, given that they weren't particularly high and creating this imputation of how did these small steps create such an injury that um, took him off the job for over 100 days, you know, that's pretty smeary sort of journalism um, running those imputations. So no wonder we haven't heard about the 277 promises that are coming from Labor or those 400 coming from the Liberals with those sorts of um, front page stories. So we're recording this on Monday, uh, election night, Saturday night. What are each of you going to be watching for on the night? What do you think is a, what would be a tips about what to watch for? Stuart? I know what I'll be looking for, uh, as I always do, is I, I will look to the inner urban seats. I'll look to see uh, what's happening there. Um, that's because of my you know, natural desire to focus on where, where are the greens going? Are they going up, down or around the circuit? For me, it'll be interesting what happens in the, in the circle of seats around the inner urban area, uh, whether there's movement across those. Um, if there is not... Uh, then I actually would argue the Greens are going to have a relatively poor night. Um, <clears throat> would want to see how any of the other parties that are running, you know, multiple candidates, i.e., you know, the full the full slate, as to how they're travelling in each of those seats, because it might also give us a, an indicator of, you know, what sort of um, push that is given um, to people voting for minor parties or for that matter. Um, 
major parties. I have people started to go, actually, we're, we're pissed off with both of them, but I'm going to um, vote for one of them because I don't want the other one. Or is it going to be, I'm pissed off with both of them. Um, I'm going to go and vote for some ultra-conservative you know, over here in, the, in this, this other seat. Um, I'm not sure whether ultra-conservative teals or conservative teals will necessarily pull the kinds of votes that the slightly centrist, centre-left teals would have, for the simple reason that uh, the centre-left teals are the ones pulling votes from across the centre, if you like, that central spectrum, whereas the Conservative is going to be pulling votes primarily from the Liberal Party. may make it harder for the Liberal Party to win, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can build enough votes for themselves to win. Um, so I actually think that may be a, a problem if their vote has gone up for the Liberal Party uh, and not necessarily for anyone else. Um, Labor, in that, in that sense, could be relatively comfortable when it's got a, a, a conservative teal against it. So, you know, you've got a mix of seats to, to keep an eye on. I'll be doing something similar, looking at the marginal seats, but also the swing. If we look at recent polling, and there aren't a lot of data points, but the polls that have um, been published do show a fairly comfortable victory for Labor, ranging from 57% down to 53% two-party preferred. So the first thing will be to see whether there's a swing against the ALP and then look at some of those um, marginal seats in the Outer Eastern area that traditionally have been with the Libs that went over to Labor at the last election. I'll be looking at those teal seats, of Caulfield, Hawthorne, Kew and Mornington. I don't quite share Stuart's scepticism on their likelihood of success. I think there will be a degree of a protest vote against Daniel Andrews and it'll play out in those seats. I'd also look at Polworth because with the redistribution that happened last year, uh, Polworth's become a much more marginal seat and now includes the urbanised areas around the Ballerine Peninsula, not just the farmlands down around in the Western Districts. Um, so Richard Reardon might have his work cut out for him there. Um, that's now on 52%. I think Richmond will go to the Greens. Dick Wynn was a very popular Labor member who's retiring uh, and I don't think the Labor candidate has covered herself in glory uh, so, so they're probably the main ones. Hastings for the ALP is the most marginal out um, in the east and Sandringham for the Liberals, so that'll be worth watching. And then there's Ellie Cooper, who is a independent. Um, she's Mildura. She's on a marginal, but I think she's a very popular local member, so uh, I imagine that um, she'll still get up. And there's another independent as well um, out around Shepparton area, I imagine she'll get back to and we'll see a few more country independents get up. One other thing I would be really interested in watching is the differential trends between different regions. Uh, early on in the campaign in particular, there's a lot of talk about Liberals, you know, they lost ground in the eastern suburbs and the southeastern suburbs in the federal election. You know, Tim Smith coming out and saying we should forget about these seats and find other seats. Well, I'm not really sure where those other seats are, but there has been talk about the Western suburbs, places like Melton, which um, if you look at my guide, um, has always been significantly to the left of the state on a 2PP basis until the last election when the state swung towards the Labor Party and Melton swung hard in the opposite direction. Uh, was that a one election thing? Is that a trend? 
I don't know. That's that's one to watch. Point Cook nearby, uh, where there's a strong independent running. I think there's a really good chance that all just fizzles out and doesn't turn into anything. That's just hype, and you know it's going to be a much much more difficult task for the Liberal Party to kind of grab hold of areas that they've never been strong in. You know, Morrison tried to do it in the federal election with no success, but that's one worth watching because I think it is possible you could see. Um, kind of a progressive swing or at least no swing in other parts of the state, Labor holding on in more traditional marginal seats and, uh, you know, getting a little bit more wobbly, weakening a little bit in some of those seats. Those are also places where it seems like the kind of reaction to the lockdown has been a little bit worse. People were more likely to be put out of work in a difficult position because of the lockdowns. Uh, those there's some areas out there that swung to the Liberal Party in the federal election, which was pretty uncommon in urban Australia. Um, and, you know, that's where I think you could see groups like the Freedom Party doing particularly well. That's where Catherine Cumming represents. Um, yeah, that, that'll be a story worth telling. I don't think it'll do very much to help Matthew Guy become Premier. But um, there might be some interesting snippets of what could be a long-term trend there. You make a good point, Ben. Those lower socioeconomic seats um, might also, some of those voters might be enticed by Matthew Guy's promise for uh, electricity price relief. He's promising half a billion dollars to um, help Victorians pay their electricity bills. Whether that promise has resonated, um, I don't know. But if it is going to resonate, it's going to resonate in those um, lower socioeconomic areas. I mean, on that, I actually do think there's still a question of will voters react to it? Will they believe it? Um, Will they necessarily be enticed by, you know, bags of money being tossed around when they all they've been hearing for the last few months is it's tight, budgets are tight, they know their own budgets are tight, interest rates are going up. Um, where are governments finding this sudden bag of money to splash everywhere? I mean, I, I almost wonder if there's almost an element of you know promise too much and people start to disbelieve that you can actually deliver, or is it oh yes, it's always the hip pocket nerve gets hit and everybody responds instantly. Uh, I'm not necessarily convinced anymore by you know big big dollar spends on things. I think people have become uh, maybe it's all those years of Howard and Costello playing out. And certainly for for me and for maybe people you know 20 years younger than me, going, yeah, hang on, I remember you know when the so-called rivers of gold flowed and it didn't seem to flow towards us. Why is it necessarily going to happen now? Because Matthew Guy wants to become premier and says I'm going to splash the cash. So that's about it for this episode of the Tallyman Podcast. Thank you, Andrea and Stuart, for joining me. Thank you, Andrea. Pleasure. And thank you, Stuart. Thank you very much, Ben. On Saturday night, I will be covering the election results on the Guardian's live blog, and then we'll be back with post-election analysis at the Tally Room on Sunday, with a podcast scheduled to go up on Tuesday morning. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. If you're voting in the Victorian state election this week, I recommend you vote at least one to five below the line. Once again, thanks for listening.